you've kept standing. I'm, I'm really glad because we are going to uh, hear God's Word together. We stand, you know why we stand to hear God's Word? Because sometimes when we sit, we can sort of settle in and not listen. But when this is our Father's Word, especially in a time like this where we need to hear it, we need to be as attentive as possible to say, Father, what would you have to say to us? So today we turn to Matthew uh, chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, verses beginning with verse 9, and we'll read through verse 17, and I want us to remember that what we are listening to is our Father's Word. Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And this is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You perhaps see that we've changed the sermon this week. It's because of a deep conviction that I have that when things happen that are out of the ordinary in the world that God has put us in, it may be we have to pull away and do something different. I've been asking the Father, our Father, what, what He'd have us to look at, and so we changed. We, uh, Jeff and I didn't decide to make the change until Friday, so you know this will probably not be a polished sermon. I don't know if I'm ever very polished, but, but it's what the Lord has put on my heart, and um, I'm praying that as we speak about some challenging things that it, it, it will do more of God's good than damage. Let me just lead us in prayer for a moment. Father, as we open your word, I pray for myself that, that as David prayed, you'd put a watch over my lips, that my words truly would be yours. And I pray for each other person here in our worship center that you would open their eyes to whatever you would have to say. So Father, do your work in each of our lives today, that we may bring glory to you. Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as we've been saying all morning, you know, this week has been such a turbulent week. And I know there are such differing opinions about everything, because I heard it after the first service. Um, but we've had here in our own neighborhood little Salvador Esparza, the little four-year-old boy who was shot, and, and we know that's not right. We've had these two uh, young men who were shot by authorities, and there are all sorts of differences about why and whether, but Anton, I like to say the names, because I want us to know that the people are, are people made in God's image, not just an it, but a person, you know? Anton Sterling in Baton Rouge and Philando Castile uh, from a place just outside St. Paul, Minnesota, Falcon Crest. Then, after that, in the midst of all the turmoil in Dallas, of course, five police officers who actually in the course of wanting to protect people who were really protesting against them were shot. And here are their names. Brent Thompson, uh, Patrick Zamaripa, Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, Lauren Irons. You know, I, I changed the message because it, it wasn't just that these things happened in places, but our whole nation is saying, what's going on? And so, as you know, protests are happening everywhere around our nation these days. And when those things happen, don't you think we need to gather and to say, does God have anything to say about a time like this? Shouldn't we do that? If we don't, well, th then the Bible is irrelevant to the world that we are in. And I find out that God does have something to say. I mean, the Bible talks to us about why there is so much pain and suffering and death in the world. I talk to you about this often. It starts in Genesis 3. It tells us also and it reminds us so that we can have hope that all the pain and shooting and death in this world won't last forever that Jesus came to change things and he's going to finish what he began. So I talk to you about that often as well, don't I? Those, those are at the heart of the good news and, and we need to hold on to them. But instead today what I want, want to remind us of is where I sort of ended my message last week. That Jesus knew that this world would continue to be in trouble. And that's why he said that this world is going to need some salt and some light. Remember I talked about that? salt because this world is a deteriorating world. He loves this world, but he came to bring some salt into this world so that things wouldn't have to deteriorate the way that they do. He knew that this was a, a world of darkness, that people don't quite know how to live, and they need some light. And out of love, he was going to come as the light of the world and to bring light into this world. And then the shocking thing that we looked at is that the main way that Jesus said he is going to bring God's salt and light into a world that God loves is that he's going to plant things in local neighborhoods against which the very gates of hell cannot prevail. That's what Jesus said. I'm going to start something that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, what is, what is he going to plant? He's going to plant local representatives of his family, groups of people that he is beginning to change, turn into the lights of the world. He's going to put us together into a neighborhood like uh, Pasadena, California. And he says, don't be surprised when in the world that you are in, there's going to be the kind of evil that even puts me to death for you and to bring about uh, my transformation. But you, you in that neighborhood, you have to be salt and light. You've got to be people who don't just come to church and do religion. You actually have to come 
and hear how I would have you to live and then go out into the world as my salt and light. So I keep asking, what is the church, what do people like that look like? Who's in, who's not? How do we live? How should we not live? And, and this uh, story that's found in Matthew chapter 9, I think is a good starting point. It might surprise you when I read it to you why I would pick that out for this particular message. But here's what happened. Uh, Jesus had done a rather remarkable miracle in a little town called Capernaum where he spent so much of his time so that people knew he had great power. Then after doing that miracle, he walked through the city and he came up there probably to the city gate and there was a tax collector. That's, that's where if we were doing a, a, a sort of a reenactment, we'd have da-da-da-da, you know, every, every tax collector. He was this evil guy that nobody liked that, that, that was keeping poor people, making them poorer and, and keeping his own people under the oppression. And so what, what is Jesus, this powerful Jesus, what is he going to do to that guy? Kick him out, get rid of him. What is he going to do to him? Well, he did what he has always done and what he did in my life, what he does in your life, and that's point number one. He, he calls unlikely people to be with him. That's what Jesus does. He sees people as people made uh, in, that, in God's image that he came to restore, and he calls unlikely people to be with him. Look at verse 9. So Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at that tax collector's booth. Follow me. He said, and Matthew got up and followed him. So that's what we are, Christians. Um, we are unlikely people who haven't been able to earn our way to God. We've all fallen short. Jesus loves you and loves me. He steps up to us and he says, follow me. And when we say yes, what does that mean? That means that we are called people who are on call to the one who called us. That's what it means. On call. So I've been thinking about that. People on call. That's what we are as Christians. On call. So I thought, what is a good illustration of that? I thought first of doctors who carry pagers. Some of you do. And then you have lunch with your pastor and you get beeped and you're gone. So you're on call. <laughs> but then I thought of a better illustration. It really came because last week I had been called for a, a jury service. So I, I was looking at my summons that was right in front of me when I was getting ready to prepare the message, and this is what it said. Gregory L. Waybright, you are ordered by the Superior Court of Los Angeles County to appear for service. You will be on call for jury service. What did that mean? That meant I was no longer in control of my days. That meant that I had to be ready to go when I was called and serve when I was directed. That meant that each evening I had to call after 7 o'clock and say, what would you have me to do tomorrow? <laughs> That's what I was on call. So, Christians, we are people on call. But we are on call not just for one week. We are on call for the rest of our lives. That's what Matthew was. That's what you and I are. But we are on call to the one through whom the, the earth and the heavens were made, to Jesus himself. Now, now listen to me. When you leave, live a life on call to Jesus, that means every day you check in and say, how would you have me to live today? Uh, when that happens, it's a good thing. Where he calls you to go and what he has you to do will help you to become complete in Christ. 
And whatever he calls you to do will be a part of his work. It will often be very hard, those places where he calls you and me to serve. But when we go, it will be for the betterment of the world in which he has put us. Uh, in, in the light of this, just like Matthew, we entrust our lives to him and we say, whatever you would have me to do, wherever you would have me to go, Lord, I am yours and I am yours today. It's like the Apostle Paul said. After he'd come to know Jesus, I'm no longer my own. I'm a bought man. That's why <laughs> I'm bought with a price. I'm bought with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. So now for me to live is is Christ. Okay, so that's what we are. That's what Jesus does. He calls unlikely people to come to be with him. We are people on call. Now, we like that sometimes, but number two is the part that we often don't like. <clears throat> when Jesus calls you, he calls you not only to be with him, but he also calls you to be with the others that are on call. What, who are these others, Jesus, you might say? Look at verse 10. So while Jesus was having dinner at, at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and, just wondering if you're here, and, is it up there? <laughs> tax collectors and sinners and the disciples. Oh, brother. Okay. This matter of eating with somebody in Jesus' day, this was a big thing. They didn't have fast food. No, no. <laughs> it was slow food. Uh, so when you dined with somebody, you would recline. You'd be there for a long time. You would talk. You would share life with that person. And because of that, in Jesus' society, among Jewish people, and in almost every society, they had strict rules about you can eat with this person and not with that person afraid you're going to be contaminated by certain people. But the biggest reason was this, this conviction, and I think it's the right one, that when you actually dined with people, it was saying, I, I identify with those people. And actually, when we do life, we, we become more and more like those people that we take that kind of time to actually have a meal with. It's kind of like when I was a seminary student, I would have the formal class. When it was just before lunch, I'd go out to lunch with my, my friends, fellow students, and I think that had much more of an impact on my life. Because as we were talking, we talked about the application of everything that we had learned. It shaped our lives. So, so the person that you eat with has to do with those you identify with and those that you want to have shape life. So who did Jesus eat with? <clears throat> uh, tax collectors and sinners. Whew. Okay, so first of all, when I see that, uh, tax collectors were hated, right? But when I look at this, uh, tax collectors also had a circle of friends. I hadn't really thought about this before. They weren't the only ones. Who are these people that they had to eat with and to be with? Well, sinners. <laughs> who, who are they? Sometimes they were other tax collectors, but mostly they were people that weren't welcome in, in polite society. They would be swindlers and, and thieves, sometimes prostitutes, people who'd been let out of prison. And there's Jesus eating with them. Uh, now, I read a lot of commentaries, and I think many of us uh, in, in churches like ours, pastors like me, kind of get sentimental when we think about Jesus eating with people like this. But we've got to think about it. The fact is that these people that he was eating with, these tax collectors and sinners, they were, they were messing up their neighborhood. Uh, the tax collector was oppressing the poor, doing unjust things to people, uh, swindlers and thieves. <laughs> 
They weren't good for the neighborhood. Prostitution wasn't good for the neighborhood. You don't even know all the reasons why people got into those kinds of lives. But who would that be like if you saw your senior pastor spending all my time having dinner with, I mean, really having dinner with, what, drug dealers or gang leaders? Or You'd say, what is our pastor doing? But here is Jesus dining with them. But that meant for all of the disciples who'd come from good Jewish homes, most of them, they had to be there too. If they were going to be with Jesus, they had to be with these people. And people criticized them for it. That question in verse 11 is more of an accusation than a question. Hey, why does that teacher of yours, that rabbi, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Good people wouldn't do that. Other rabbis have never done that. But Jesus did it. And he said, that's why I've come. That's why there's hope for you and me. Uh, I've not come for those who think they are righteous. Nobody really was, but some thought they were. I have come for those who know that they are sick and need a physician. When they need a physician and come to me, they are going to find healing. I, I hope that you get it. That, that when Jesus puts us on call, we are all already people who have humbly repented of our own sins and we've placed our, our faith in him. I keep trying to, this week for the first time, I tried to put myself into the shoes of these uh, disciples who were there. Can you imagine good Jewish boys like Peter and John being seen having lunch with Matthew? What's mom going to think? <laughs> that's, when you look at that, and yet to be with Jesus, that's where they had to be. Brothers and sisters, that's what the church of Jesus Christ looked like. It still looks like Jesus died at the hand of sinners to bring sinners to himself like us. And we're not the only ones. Others who come to Jesus are brought into this, this one family. When we receive him, he brings us into a community of rescued sinners. He gives us the privilege of eating with him, but also with our entire unexpected family. And then together, together, he sends us out as salt and light into the world. This had to have been the shocking thing. For the rest of the time that Jesus was there, Matthew was out there together with the Peters and the Johns, out there in the community, saying, that one, that Jesus, he's the one who brings us together. Do you see that? Uh, nobody does. Do you see the relevance of this to what is happening in our broken world? That, that we need to be a community that says, yeah, our whole world is broken into black and blue, that there's no way they're ever going to come back together again. We're going to take one side or the other. And Jesus, what he would do, I know. He would say, come and follow me. And, and, and then when he, we follow him, we've got to eat together and learn from one another and represent him in a broken world together. Do you see that? I don't think I made that clear enough in 9 o'clock service. If you see some of them, go tell them what I really wanted to tell them. Which brings us to the third point, that when you're on call with Jesus, when you live life with Jesus, you just can't be the same as you were before. He changes us. So I'll show you how it plays out in chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. So some of the disciples of John the Baptist, this was a particular group, John the Baptist came there earlier, and so they were religious people, and they said to Jesus, Jesus, how is it that we and the Pharisees, uh, we fast often, but your disciples aren't doing that anymore. You don't fast. Uh, because for them, the very heart of religion was doing the religious things. Fasting was one of them. It was a good one. Still is. But here, disciples of Jesus, 
not fasting. So, so what's going on here? Now, someday I've got to return to all these verses about, about uh, uh, putting a new patch on an old garment, putting a, a new wine into old wineskins. I'm going to come back to it, but I, today I've just got to make the main point. So I'm, I'm going to start making the main point this way. When Jesus put Matthew on call, he didn't just save him and forgive his past. He changed his life. He, he couldn't keep doing the things he'd done before. He might have been able to go back to tax collecting. I don't know. He didn't for the next couple of years, that's for sure. But if he get, went back, he couldn't be unjust anymore, right? He, he couldn't treat people without mercy anymore because he had met Jesus. He was on call to Jesus. His life had to change. Uh, the rest of the people might have looked at that and said, well, of course he had to change. He was a tax collector. They're, they're rotters. And, but we're religious people. We don't have to change. And this whole six section is, no, when, when I come into your life, you're going to have to change too. And, and the biggest thing is, uh, for his own people, the Jewish people, um, rightly, they had had a lot of these kind of, of, of rituals and, and, and religious things that kept them distinctive as a people group. The Jewish people had, this, had remained distinctive from the rest of the world as a people group because through them, a Messiah, a Savior for the whole world was going to come. If you're new to the church, you, don't, you know that, right? So they were kept distinctive. Those, the, all those things pointed to the fact that somebody was going to come to save the world. But once he came, everything changed. Uh, some of those rituals were still good, like fasting. But I'm telling you, when the one is here that you have been waiting for your whole life, that's not the time to fast. When you have a wedding ceremony and you come together, that's supposed to be a time of joy. And you don't say after afterwards, no, no, we're so sorry about this thing. Oh, we're just going to fast. We're not going to have anything here. No, no, no. The times and seasons have changed. And for us, what Jesus is declaring here is, when you bring me into your life, your life changes. You're on call to me. And that means every day of your life, kind of like for me with jury duty, you call in and say, Jesus, what time is it today? And what would you have me to be? And what would you have me to do? For them, it was not the time of fasting because that's not the heart of our faith. The heart of our faith is that Jesus is our Lord. So we go to him and say, Jesus, what is it that you would have us to do today? It makes your Christian faith so much more alive. Amen. I tell you that every day we say, what's happening in my life? Who am I meeting today? What's happening in our world? How can I go out into it? What would you have me to do? It keeps our faith alive and real to, the, to every day. So I've been thinking about that a lot this week. Uh, God has placed us in this place at this time. And, and it's so clear to me, he has called us together as a church uh, to be his salt and light here in the San Gabriel Valley and beyond. And so I've been praying so much, Father, what is your time for us? Lord Jesus, what would you call those of us who are on call to you to do? And so I, I, there's so, several verses that have been on my mind and heart. I want to give them to you. Uh, you might say there are many more verses we need to look at, and I say, right, we need to do that. But I want to share these with you and, and think a, bit, a little bit about whether, how they might apply to us. And I pray that as I do, it, it will help us to be more God's reconciling agents than, than divisive agents in our world. So he, here we go. This is the first one that came to my mind. It's my whole idea about what we should be as a local church. I want you to renew your commitment to really doing life with your family. 
This belief that just like that day, he called Matthew and he called the rest of the disciples and brought them together into a church or his group that became his church. So today for us, he calls us together with all of these unlikely, unexpected people at Lake Avenue Church. And now I think this is a time where we have to demonstrate together the unity of God to this neighborhood as we never have before. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is, I put, put a part of it up here for you, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. It's one of the first texts I ever preached to you about because it's my understanding of the church. They were divided too. Jew and Gentile, there was as divided as any kind of division we have. And this is what Paul said, through Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are members of his household. In Christ, you are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Do you see what he's saying here? That even though the spirit of God comes into us individually, that when he calls us into the life of the church, there is some special presence of God that is among us. And that when we come together and praise him together and we go out and serve him together, we experience and see the power of God in our world as we never otherwise see it. You've got to remember that in Jesus' day, people were just as broken from one another as we are. Uh, Paul, in that Ephesians text, simply takes up the Jew-Gentile issue. They were, they were divided in almost every other way, and so Jesus intentionally would go in. His, his own people, it was clear, it was divided between those who were like the Pharisees and those who were like the tax collector, and he takes them both and brings them together in, in faith. When we, and, and so that in this divided world, when people ever say, is there ever any hope that the kind of divisions that we have in our world can come together? Jesus says, yes, but it's got to be what your church is. And even if you, you come to church on a day like today and you just feel so strongly emotional about different things as, as you sense your own pastor does, you cast your eyes upon the Lord and you say, Lord, you brought me together with this family. We've got to learn from one another. We've got to do meals with one another. So one of the things that I hope we can learn to do as, as a church is, is not just to come and worship in our separate pews, but find some people that you look and you say, look at them and you say, I think I disagree with that person about a lot of stuff. Let's go out and have lunch. I wish we had some meals today. All, I think all we have is donuts. That's better than nothing. Let's go out and have lunch. And, and then, then don't scold that person or, or, or just lecture to that person to listen across the lines of color. Why is it that you black people are always so mad? Why is it that you white people are always so blind? How do we even talk to one another? God says, I'll put you into a family. You're on call to me. Uh, and now come and, and learn about the, the difficult world that I put you in so that you'll be able to go out from that place representing the oneness of God in a world that needs to see that there is a different way. Don't give up on your family. Do you know Jesus hasn't given up on us? We, we desperately need one another. If we get all of our input just from the world, the media and the world out there, we're going to be messed up like the whole world is. But we've got to come together and, and listen to one another and respect one another. I imagine if that can happen, that even though it will take a while for us to ever come to some agreement, maybe as we learn to speak to one another, we'll be able to go out and learn to speak to others as well and bring glory to his name. So that's the first thing I want to give you. Make, make a commitment.
to a family like this and actually to trying to find people and spend time with people across some of these divides so that we can understand one another much better. Number two, we also must really enter into the lives of others. And I think especially when I watch the evidence of Jesus, we have to enter into the lives of people who are really hurting and, and feel persecuted. So the verse that I've picked out is one that I've shown you a lot, Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Now, I posted this on social media this week, and I've gotten so much pushback in so many ways. Uh, I'm glad it's in the Bible, so I can say, well, that's what the Bible says. It really helps me. <laughs> but, but here is what's said, and maybe you feel some of this when you come. Pastor, it, it's not enough just to mourn. We've done all that, and we've had times we just come and pray and then go out today. You've got to do more. We've got, got to do more. And, and I do understand that, so that as I've listened to some of you and some of you have spoken in a, to my own life, people that I love, I've heard so many things. Uh, I've had some wives within our church family tell me that they're in fear for their husbands. Uh, people of color feeling that they're going to be the next person to be shot over, pulled over and shot. I've had two moms tell me that they're terrorized, bringing up their children, wondering how they can teach them to live in a world like this. And I've had a brother in Christ, very active brother in Christ, tell me straight, he said this, when unarmed young black men are pulled over and shot again and again in our country, then I fear for my own life as an unarmed black man. And then, of course, on the other side, we have a number of law enforcement officers in our church whose families are, are almost terrorized every time their spouse, their husband or wife or, or father or, or mother goes off, off to work. I didn't mention this in the first service, but my uh, cousin Don was a West Virginia state trooper. Years ago, he was shot when he pulled a man uh, off to the side of the road. Uh, he wasn't killed, but the rest of his career was ended because it was a very serious uh, wound. It, it deeply affected our whole family. Um, he was there defending, and here he was shot. So if I ever say anything that makes you think that I don't really value or even feel for our wonderful people who wear blue and, and the vast majority want to support us, please forgive me if, if that is true. I, uh, I pray, pray for that, for, for protection and safety and blessing to happen. But what we have to do is then listen across those divides, across the divides that are happening, get some meals across that divide so that then we can go out. So if I come and say where it has to start is with mourning with people who mourn, I, I say that because the Bible commands that. It says it's a distinguishing trait of, of people who follow God. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who mourn. And then after he said it, in Matthew chapter 5, quickly he said, it's when you actually mourn uh, for people who are hurting because of the effects of sin in this world, that's when you begin to have hunger for what is right, that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. But if we don't ever enter into lives and start mourning with people, anything we do will only bring about damage. We've got to find out where people are really hurting. Seek God to see what difference we can make. So I still think we've got to enter into the lives because the main thing Jesus did when he came was to form a community of people against whom the gates of hell could not prevail and then to send us out into this world together 
to say to people who say, we'll never come together, to say there is a better way. Amen. Jesus has brought us together, and he can do that with you too. Yes. Um, Mike Martin, who works in our tech team, so he can shut me off right now if he wants. <laughs> he sent me a wonderful note, wonderful note. He said, what we need to do is step up and be men, women, individuals who stand for the community we live in. We need to love those who need to feel Christ's love through us. We must let law enforcement take the jobs that they've been called to do and pray they'll do them well. Then we must let God's people handle the cries for help here where we can do good. That's better than anything I can preach. You heard it. Mike, it's a blessing. Number three, while we're doing all that, we have to pray for and always respect people in authority. We've got to pray for them. So I've got to show you something here. Romans chapter 13, you may know this text, verses 1 and 2. Paul declares, there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist, he says, they've been established by God. It is a consistent message of the Bible that the very worst uh, kind of uh, structure or system in our world is anarchy. Uh, the whole book of Judges is about it. Everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. So that in every place in this world, God establishes authorities, families, parents. That's supposed to be us. Church, it's supposed to be your spiritual leadership. And in our government, there are authorities that God has placed. Now, you might say, Paul, that's easy for you to say because you lived in a better government than we do. And I tell you, he did not. I mean, this emperor Nero, that's the same government that put him to death. And yet, even in that, he was saying we need to have respect for that and know that even that authority is not outside of the control of God. And what we have to do specifically, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is I urge, he said, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, but especially for kings and those in authority. This is good. This is what pleases God. Now listen to me carefully. This is not saying that we should never question the authorities. And especially here in the United States, we have been given so much freedom to be able to bring up questions when we see injustices. We should do that. We should also go out, and as the Bible so clearly tells us, we should use our voices when we have voices. For those who are voiceless, we, we've got to do that. When he gives us resources, we need to stand with people who are going through difficult times. Jesus called Matthew away from that kind of oppression. You've just got to see that. And we have the opportunity to do the same thing. But we must respect the authorities that God has placed over us. And I think one of the best things that we have to do if we get really angry with the authorities is maybe, maybe say, could we have a meal together? Help me to understand. Maybe I can help you to understand. Then number four, we always must act. We must act, but in ways in keeping with God's word. And there's so much of God's word that I could show you about how we should act and so forth. But the one <laughs> uh, that I decided I wanted to show you is Romans uh, 12, 20 to 21. Act in this way. If there's somebody to you that that person has become an enemy, more of an it than a you, then here's what you should do according to the command of God's word. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil. 
overcome evil with good. That's hard. But Jesus said it too, you know. He said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Can that actually be done? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who experienced so much persecution under the worst government I've ever heard of, under Nazi Germany, is one who, after many, many years of trying to figure out how do you live in a world like this, decided that this is exactly where we have to come back to. And this is what he wrote. I put it up. I've been doing a journey, a spiritual journey, with a group of people following Scripture, reading Scripture together, and reading some of Bonhoeffer's thoughts. This was one that we got. Quoting uh, Romans 12, 20, words and thoughts are not enough. That's right, huh? Doing good then involves all the things of daily life because if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. So in the same ways that brothers and sisters stand by each other in times of need, bind up each other's wounds, each, ease each other's pain, love of the enemy should do good to the enemy. Where in the world is there greater need where are there deeper wounds and pain than those of our enemies? Where is doing good more necessary and more blessed than for our enemies? How does love become unconquerable? By never asking what the enemy is doing to it, but only asking what Jesus has done. Loving enemies leads disciples to the way of the cross and into communion with the crucified one. Remembering while we were enemies, Christ died for Thank you, you're alive. Yeah. Okay. Five, and finally, sometimes it's hard to give specifics about what we should do. This evening at 6.30, we will do this. We're going to be coming together with brothers and sisters in Christ from all over our city and, and praying together. 6.30, if you go there and say, I don't know what to do, we'll just look for us. We don't know either, but we'll, we'll be there ready, ready to pray. You can look for your pastors, we'll be there. But even though we're not sure of all the things to do, there's one thing very clear in the Bible not to do. Here it is. Never take revenge. Never take revenge. Vengeance is God's sole prerogative. Quoting Deuteronomy, Paul said in Romans chapter 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Don't take revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for him to do the work. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, declares the Lord. Now, sometimes when we see evil in the world or things happen to us, we just get mad, right? We just get mad. And, and when we get angry, we, we, we want that evil to be tell, dealt with right now. Uh, am I the only one who feels that way? Any, uh, and, and it doesn't happen fast enough. And then our natural tendency is we want to take matters into our own hands. God says, that's my job. And we think, I've got to help God out. He, he's not going to do it. Be, because going back to that Revelation, I mean, Romans 13 text, God establishes authorities to bring about his justice. Uh, in a family, it's parents, in, in the church, spiritual leadership, in a government, all the authorities that are there. And, and in all of those places, we often fail. Uh, when we fail, sometimes we say, well, then, I, then, then I'll do it for God. And God says, no, 
I am the God of the universe. I am just. This is my job. You and I don't have to do his job for him. Oh, it's so easy for me to preach, isn't it? Oh, brother, this is hard to do. When, when we really get angry about the things that are happening, I, when I was a brand new pastor, I did a wedding for a young man, big man, strong man, and within a week, his wife was unfaithful to him. He came into my office. Yeah, I, oh, that's, that's what, he, and he opened this thing up to me. He was angry. I said, well, I have a verse to show to you. <clears throat> um, Don't repay evil for evil. Do not take revenge, dear friend. Leave room for God to do his work. It didn't play well. <laughs> it didn't play well. And it still doesn't, does it? But listen to me. When we're on call. I'm back to that again. We're on call. And one thing we're never called to do is to take justice into our own hands. There are so many other things that we are called to do. To go out and, and love people, pray for people, walk alongside people, be a voice for people. One thing we are never allowed to do is to be the ones who try to bring about justice in our own hands. That is God's job. That's what happened in Dallas. One man, angry, thought we're never going to get justice. I'll bring about justice does not bring about justice. What it, what it does, it's like a kindergarten. You know, where one uh, playground, you know, one kid hits another and the other says, I'm going to go get my brother. I'm, two of them hitting one. I'm going to go get my sister. She's bigger than all of us. And that gets, just keeps escalating and escalating and it gets worse and worse and eventually you have war. Jesus came. All the evil of the world was thrown at him. He absorbed it and did not offer back revenge but forgiveness and a new life. And he sends us in his name. I'm going, our, main, our main role is to be God's family together, representing the unity that Jesus can bring about and, and showing the love of Jesus. Our role is not to be the ones who bring justice. So I'm going to... Uh, give you Dr. Martin Luther King's address that has always meant so much to me. It's called The Strength to Love. Look at what he had to say. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence in a descending spiral of destruction. So, so when Jesus says, love your enemies, he is setting forth a profound and ultimately inescapable admonition. And then almost as if he's speaking to our world now. Have we not come to such an impasse in the modern world that now we must love our enemies or else? The chain reaction of evil, hate beginning hate, wars producing wars, must be broken or we shall be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. God will finish his work. And until his work is done, we should never be surprised when we have weeks in our own country that we've experienced this past week. But then at those times we gather together and remember 
that God has placed us in this world for such a time as this. And specifically, he has placed us here to be his salt and his light. He has drawn us together from across all of the divides to become one in Christ. And then he sends us out into a hurting world that he loves, and he asks us to love it as he loves it and to touch the people of this world, to be salt. He asks us to go out into a world that right now, I just hear it everywhere, how are we supposed to live? Where are we to find a different way in the midst of this world? And we are to be the light pointing to the light of the world, saying, we were as divided as you were, but Jesus is the one who has brought us together, and what he's done for us, he can do for you. But it can only be if we live life together. So until the work of Jesus is done, until people of every skin color, every age, every tribe, language, and nation are gathered around the throne of God, all of us on our knees, together on our knees, before the one who made it possible for us to be there, the one who gave his life, and we are together singing, worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Salvation, the only hope, belongs to our God. Until that time comes, let us go and be his salt, touching the people of the world, his light shining to his glory in his name. Amen. Amen.